Good morning, brothers. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a good week so far. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. As you're turning there, just a little bit of a refresher. Remember last week we said that chapters 8 and 9 is uh, one full section of Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew has taken about 10 miracle stories and has thematically connected them and put them together to give us this beautiful picture of who Jesus is as our authoritative king. Now, we saw lots of amazing things in chapter 8, but in chapter 9, this this picture gets even more uh, beautiful. And his main point is to show us, like he showed us last week, that Jesus, as king, truly is an authority over absolutely everything and therefore demands our allegiance as his followers. But we also saw that Jesus is the king that we can trust. Okay, so let us go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 9 to look at this beautiful picture of Jesus that Matthew is painting for us, starting in verse 1. Matthew writes, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to themselves, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but, but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, and they will fast then. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put in old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now while he was saying these things to him, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. And so Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. But behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for this girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on his son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. As they were going away, uh, going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was uh, mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went out all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly God, I thank you for my brothers. I thank you for another day um, where we can study your word together. I pray that you would send your spirit upon us as we study that you would um, take this word and use it to not only inform us, but transform us. Uh, we love you, Father. We pray this in the blessed name of the risen Christ. Amen. Uh, now, last week we began by saying that the idea of authority um, has had a bad rap uh, the past couple hundred years. And really, that's been the case since, since Genesis 3, where we see time after time there's been men and people in authority and power who have abused it. They've used violence and, and fear. They've oppressed, repressed people. They've been indifferent to those who, who needed help. And so understandably, for most people throughout the world, even today, um, they are very sus uh, suspicious when even they hear the word authority. But brothers, imagine if there was a different kind of authority, a different type of power. An authority that had nothing to do with fear or intimidation or violence, but had everything to do with freedom and love. Imagine a power that had uh, that didn't uh, malform people, but rather transformed them. Now, if that type of authority, if, or if that type of power existed, people across the world would go nuts. They would say, well, that's the type of power and authority we desire. That's the type of power and authority that we would submit to. That, that's, the, that's the power and authority we need. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, that's exactly what, what Matthew has been showing us in the Gospel of Jesus. As king, he is the one in true authority. <laughs> and it's, you can't miss it. He has authority in his teaching. He has authority over sickness and illness. He has authority over chaos, the seas. He even has authority over demons. But then as we get into chapter 9, we see that this authority is even more grand, even more beautiful. He has the authority to cancel sin. He has the authority to change lives from the inside out and to free people from whatever is gripping them so tightly. Story after story, Matthew is showing us that Jesus truly is king. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He is our king. He's an authority over absolutely everything. He demands our allegiance. 
But more than that, he is the authoritative, authoritative king, brothers, that we need. And he is the authoritative king that we can trust. Now, in addition to the things that we saw last week in chapter 8, there's five um, uh, points that Matthew makes in chapter 9 about this wonderful authority uh, of Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see in verses 1 through 8 is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Now, this is the sixth miracle in this long list of miracles we've been looking at, and it's one that most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with. Um, uh, Mark and Luke give us more details about this whole this whole episode with the, with the paralyzed man and his friends coming down through the roof. Matthew, as he often does, omits certain details, and he does that to drill down into the main point of this story. And simply, the main point is that Jesus truly has the authority to forgive sins. Notice what Jesus said when he saw the paralyzed man. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's a couple of things that I want us to see from this. First off, Jesus is telling us that our greatest need is spiritual. Uh, notice that this paralyzed man and his friends, they were not expecting uh, sins to be forgiven that day. They didn't even ask for that. Um, I'm sure if, if you press them on it, they should, yeah, definitely forgive me of my sins. But that wasn't even in the realm of possibility. They just knew that, that Jesus, that he was somehow special, he was somehow divine. And all they were looking for was, was for physical healing for this paralyzed man. But as Jesus often does, doesn't he? He, he drills down um, into the heart to get to the, to the root issue. And so very compassionately, he says, son, how sweet is that? Later, with a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, he'll call her daughter. But how, how amazing is that to hear the Son of God, the creator of the cosmos, <laughs> um, call you son? It's an affectionate term. Uh, but very compassionately, Jesus, in effect, is saying, Son, you have a much deeper issue than paralysis. Now, as we saw last week, not all diseases, not all of our illnesses or our suffering is as a result of personal sin. We know that. But we also know, too, whether if you're paralyzed or not, everyone is a sinner in nature. And therefore, they sin. So regardless of whatever burden it is that we're lugging around, Jesus is saying our, the greatest burden, the greater burden that we're carrying is, is the sin in our hearts. Brothers, we could be experiencing just something miserable right now. And you might be praying for deliverance, and it's good to pray for deliverance. Whatever it is that you're suffering from might be the very thing that has driven you to Jesus in the first place, uh, just like this man's paralysis drove him to Jesus, and that's good. But as we draw near to Jesus, more to the point, as Jesus draws near to us in grace, friends, don't miss the, the powerful good news that Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't indifferent to our suffering. Of course not. We, we've seen that time and time again that he's not indifferent to our suffering. But he's saying, sons, brothers, listen, I have come to deal with your greater suffering. I've come to deal with your greater paralysis. I've come to deal with your greater loneliness. I've come to deal with the greater cancer that's eating away at your souls. I have come to solve your greatest need. And therefore, we see that our or God's greatest gift is forgiveness. Our greatest need is spiritual. God's greatest gift is forgiveness. Notice when Jesus says, take heart. That's the first thing that he says. Now, I think a better translation for that is be of good cheer. So literally, this man is looking at this paralyzed person 
and is saying, be of good cheer, paralyzed man. It sounds odd. Why, what does he have anything to be cheerful about? It's as if Jesus is saying, guy, I, I know that you've come to me to be, to be healed, to, to have the use of your body again. And, and I, I know that this is a, a, a real, tangible, important need for you, but I'm about to blow your mind. I'm about to, I'm about to, 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 to do something to you that, that's beyond your wildest dreams. Your sins are forgiven. Now, forgiven, it literally means to be sent away. He is saying, your sins have been sent away, past, present, and future. Be of good cheer. Friends, have, do you know the weight of sins being lifted from you? No matter what else you're experiencing in this life, and it could be terrible things, when you, when you have that awareness, that belief, that experience of forgiven sin, th there's absolutely nothing like it. Uh, some of you may know of Joni Erickson Tata, a very faithful sister in the Lord Jesus. She's also a quadriplegic and has been confined to uh, a mechanical wheelchair for several, several decades. Now, she's made the best of her situation. She's extremely gifted. She um, paints, she composes music, she writes using only her mouth. She's made the best of, of this situation. But make no mistake, her life has been miserable. Imagine um, only being really able to, to move from, from the neck up, being confined to a wheelchair for decades. It's misery. But this is what she said, knowing, or she says that in heaven, she knows that she'll be made whole. And she has that, she has that faith that in the day to come, I'll be made new, I'll be made whole, I'll be able to run and play, and I cannot wait for that day. But this is what she says. In the meantime, though, I would rather be confined to my wheelchair, knowing my sins are forgiven in Christ, than being able to walk without his forgiveness. It's amazing. This woman, she she has great joy. She's of good cheer, knowing that Jesus has already dealt with her greatest need. Brothers, do you know that joy? That, that joy that, that he has dealt with our, with our greatest need, that he's dealt with that. And furthermore, you can know when Jesus says that he forgives your sins, you know that he's actually forgiven you of your sins. This is the point of verses 4 through 8, when Jesus actually heals the paralytic man. He does that not only to um, show the Pharisees that they are wrong, he also does it for our benefit. Um, he, he shows us, he proves us, proves to us that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. But what's even more amazing, brothers, is that we don't really need this story to understand that and to believe that. Now, he gives us this story um, to, to accommodate the weakness of our faith, but brothers, we don't need this. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Apostle John is saying that our assurance is not based on this miracle. Our assurance isn't even based on our feeling forgiven. Our assurance is based on His honor. And if God says it, what that means is you can take it to the bank that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you confess your sins, brothers, you are forgiven past, present, and future. Do you know the joy?
be of good comfort, Jesus says. He has the authority to forgive sins. Secondly, in verses 9 through 17, we see that Jesus has the authority to save sinners, to forgive sins. Secondly, to save sinners. Now, there's three subpoints in this. First off, we see the demonstration of this authority in verses 9 and 10. We see the declaration of this authority, his mission statement that he makes very clear to us. So there's no misunderstandings in verses 11 through 13. Then in verses 14 through 17, he explains the newness of what's going on because everybody was confused by it. So first off, the demonstration, verses 9 through 10. Have you ever wondered um, why uh, Matthew includes his uh, conversion story in the middle of all these miracle stories? You know, it seems a little out of place, right? Why does he do it? Why does he include his own personal conversion story I mean, he wasn't blind, he wasn't lame, he wasn't possessed. He included his conversion story, though, in the middle of all of these other miracle stories like that. Why did he do it? Well, in Matthew's mind, it was an absolute miracle that God would save a sinner like himself. Matthew knew that he didn't deserve it, he didn't earn it, God didn't need to do it, but his conversion was an absolute miracle. And brothers, the same is true of us. We didn't earn faith. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn salvation. But God in his grace saves sinners like me and like you. And that's an absolute miracle. And and Matthew demonstrates this authority of Jesus to save sinners by including his own conversion story because Matthew knew that he really was the chief of sinners. Because remember, the guy was a tax collector. Now, back then, if there was a dictionary and you looked up sinner, there would be a picture of a tax collector. Matthew would be smiling from ear to ear because that's who he was. He was the worst of sinners. Who were tax collectors? Well, to boil it down, they were traitors. They were working for the Romans. They were traitors to, to their kinsmen. They were kind of like the French who helped the Nazis just to make life easier for themselves. And that's what Matthew did. That's why he worked for the Romans. He made life easier for himself. He was an oppressed person. I might as well, you know, get a buck or two on being oppressed. And he made a good living for himself. All tax collectors did. He made a great living breaking the financial backs of his kinsmen. In addition to that, he was hobnobbing with unclean Gentiles. Now, they didn't really care for Matthew either because all they saw him as was a Jew, a slave. Um, but he was still hobnobbing and interacting and making business deals with, with you know, unclean Gentiles. And so if you boil it all down, Matthew um, was socially, politically, and religiously unacceptable to everybody, including his own family, if they were well-meaning Jewish people. But to the shock of everyone, not least of whom Matthew, uh, uh, Jesus shows us that Matthew was not unacceptable to Jesus. This is the great miracle is that Jesus pursues even the worst of sinners. And so when Jesus comes calling Matthew, follow me, he jumped out of his seat and you better believe he followed Jesus because he knew how great of a miracle this was. Are you kidding me? That this person that I've I've met, this person that I've seen do these amazing things, he, he wants me to follow him? Of course I'm going to follow him. Jesus pursues sinners. And furthermore, notice that when uh, Matthew leaves the tax booth behind him, he didn't do it like in grim resignation. You know, he didn't do it as, oh, all right, I can't have fun anymore. Now it's time to follow Jesus. He didn't do it like that. The guy threw a dadgum party. 
<laughs> right afterwards, they were around the table and Matthew invited his other sinful friends to listen on what Jesus is saying. He was excited. Why? Because he knew that not only does Jesus pursue sinners, he's the only one that can truly satisfy sinners. Isn't that true? Friends, we were made by Jesus and for Jesus, and our hearts will always be restless until they rest in Jesus. We were made for him, and you'll only be satisfied um, when you come to him in faith. And Matthew experienced this. It was an absolute miracle, and he demonstrates for us that Jesus then has the authority to save even the worst of sinners. Now, after this, of course, the, uh, the opposition begins to grow. Um, they've already called Jesus a blasphemer, but now they start to criticize him that uh, he would even muck it up, that he would associate himself with dirty, rotten scoundrels and sinners like tax collectors. And therefore, in response, um, this is what Jesus says. He doesn't, he doesn't sidestep their criticism. We, we do that sometimes. We, we hate criticism. We hate conflict. And so we try to you know, blur the lines a little bit or, or weasel our way out of it. Jesus didn't do that. He, he met it head on. And this is what he did. He doubled down. He declared to them so that they would know beyond a shot of a doubt, that's exactly what he's come to do. He's come to save sinners. And so he declares this in verses 11 through 13, when he says, just as sick people need a doctor, this is Barton's summary. He says, sinful people are in desperate need of a redeemer. Then following that up, he quotes um, Hosea 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 6, where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, by saying those two things together, Jesus is declaring um, very clearly who he is and what he's come to do. And he also reveals a few things to the Pharisees. First off, he reveals to them that they are not as healthy as they think they are. You know, he lumps them in with people who are sick and need a doctor. The problem is they didn't know they were sick. So they're not as healthy or as righteous as they think they are, nor are they as smart as they think they are. It's really funny. In verse 13, when Jesus uh, says, go and learn, that was a rabbinic formula that a rabbi would tell his students um, if they weren't getting something important. So go and learn. Go go, go further study this in the text so you, so you might come to understand it. Which is really hilarious if you think about it, because the Pharisees, they were very prideful in being religious know-it-alls. And Jesus is saying, guys, y'all have no clue what's happening here. Go back and learn. And what is it they needed to learn? They needed to learn the mission of the Messiah. They had it in their minds that this Messiah would be this military religious ruler that would come and smite the Gentiles, that would come and smite sinners and vindicate the, the righteous Jews. And Jesus says, bros, y'all have missed it entirely. You've missed it. Go back to Hosea 6.6. 6. And that's just one of many places you can go to. But he says, my mission is a mission of mercy, is what Jesus is saying. I have not come to bring judgment, not yet. This is the year of amnesty. This is the year of jubilee. This is the year of grace. I have come to transform the hearts of sinners. I have not come to prop up self-righteous people who don't think they need a savior. And furthermore, he gives a, he gives a warning in that Hosea 6 passage. He says, if you do not practice mercy, then you do not know your father. You do not know me. And therefore, you're not going to experience these blessings that the Messiah brings. But Jesus is declaring boldly what his mission is. It's a mission of mercy. He has come to rescue sinners. He has come to save them. People like Matthew, people like me, and people, people like you. 
Now, oddly enough, it wasn't only the Pharisees who were confused. John the Baptist's disciples were, were confused too. And so Jesus begins to explain in verses 14 through 17 what's, what's going on. Um, back then, they had certain religious customs. You know, Jesus was treating sinners differently, so that confused the, the Pharisees. He was also treating customs and religious practices differently, and that confused John the Baptist's disciples. They, they fasted. And back then, fasting, for the most part, was a very sad thing. It was about mourning, commemorating bad things that have happened in, in Israel's history. And they fasted to cultivate a longing, a hope of the new day to come, of the, of the age of the Messiah. And so John the Baptist's disciples are saying to Jesus, why aren't you and, and your disciples fasting? I mean, this is... I mean, why aren't y'all longing for this is essentially what they're saying. And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you why we're not fasting. Because that new day has dawned. Hello, <laughs> I'm the Messiah. And, and to explain this, Jesus gives them three parables, one about a wedding feast, um, one about wineskins, one about new clothing. And in the vein of Bob Dylan, all of them very clearly show that the, the times, they are changing. That's what Jesus is telling them, they all insist that, that, a, that a new day has dawned, that the day of God, uh, the God's kingdom has, has broken in. And these practices that they were doing um, uh, are no longer appropriate because it's no longer nighttime. It's day. Day has dawned. Jesus is essentially saying, don't you come bringing that mopey funeral attitude to a wedding party. All right. A new day has dawned. God's kingdom has broken in the messianic age has arrived. How can we not possibly celebrate this? The only question for us is, are we celebrating that? Are we living as if a new day has dawned? Are we living as if the one who has authority to forgive sins and to save sinners has arrived? Do we have our resurrection sunglasses on? Or are we still longing and waiting for something or someone else to save us? Matthew says, be of good cheer, brothers. The one who has authority to forgive sins and the one who has authority to save sinners has come. Now, the third thing that we see in verses 18 through 26 is that Jesus has authority over death. Now, in societies back then, before modern medicine, when it was not easy to heal um, illness, there were lots of codes and lots of restrictions of what someone could and could not touch. And what they were supposed to do if, for whatever reason, they became uh, contaminated with a disease or illness. Now, the Jewish community had lots of these codes and regulations, and it was just practical wisdom to keep a healthy society. Now, two of the codes or two of the regulations on top of that list, in order to maintain purity, was to avoid touching a corpse or a hemorrhaging woman. All right, Both of whom Jesus comes into contact with in verses 18 through 26. Now this little subsection, it begins in a fury. Um, you have a panicky dad, right? Now this man, he was a, a ruler of some sorts, a civic ruler or a government ruler, maybe maybe a, a temple ruler. Um, but in any case, if you're a ruler back then, you had this, you had this uh, air of dignity about you. You wanted to maintain your social status. So you were calm, cool, and collected. You weren't panicky. This man threw all of that junk out the window because his little girl had died. And he had no idea what to do. He was desperate. And he heard about this man, Jesus. 
And so in faith, he, he tracks Jesus down and he tells him about the situation. He says, please just lay your hand on her and I know she'll be healed. And so Jesus and his disciples follow this man to, to see his daughter. Now on the way there, this, Matthew just keeps us like on the edge of our seats. He takes the focus off the little girl and puts it onto this older woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, now this woman, she was just a person in the crowd that no one paid attention to. Uh, she was faceless to everybody else because she has been suffering for 12 years. She was unclean. No one had wanted anything to do with her. But then to her amazement, she sees Jesus walk through the crowds. And she had certainly heard things about Jesus, maybe even had seen him do some of these amazing things that he's been doing. And then she saw her chance. So with the faith of the centurion, she, she reaches out and touches him. Now, back then, everybody would have understood that in ordinary circumstances, Jesus, uh, with these two miracles that he's, that he's doing, would become doubly unclean. I mean, this was taboo, a no-no. But what we've seen so far, and certainly what we see here, friends, is that, is that Jesus is far from being ordinary. The first thing that we see is that Jesus has the authority to bring hope out of despair. We see this in verses 18 through 22. For, for 12 years, this woman was suffering, bleeding. No one could help her. No one knew what to do. She was hopeless, helpless. Um, she probably had constant shame. She was ostracized by society. No one cared for her. All right. But then she saw Jesus. And again, with the faith of the centurion, she reached out and touched him. And what she came to find out was, is that she did not infect Jesus with her disease, but rather Jesus infected her with his redeeming and restoring love. Brothers, Jesus brought hope out of despair. She was in despair and he brought true hope to her, transformed her. How great of news is this, brothers? For, for hurting people, if you're hurting, this is such great news because, listen, she was lost in the crowd to everybody in town, but she was not lost in the crowd to Jesus, nor are you. You might think that people don't know what you're going through, and that might even be true. You might think people don't care what you're going through, and that might be true, but it's not true with Jesus. He knows you. He knows what you're going through. He knows your deepest seeds of shame. He knows what causes you pain. And what we learn from this woman is that we can bring absolutely everything that we have on our plate to Christ. Why? Because he is the hope of the hopeless. He has the authority to bring hope out of despair. Most importantly, what we see in verses 23 through 26 is that Jesus has authority to bring life out of death. By the time that, that Jesus made it to the official's house, um, the, the, the little girl was dead. In fact, the funeral proceedings had already begun. Um, the flute players, um, they, that was like uh, funeral music. They were mourning, they were weeping because this precious little girl's life had been cut short. But Jesus wouldn't have it. Jesus reached down and grabbed that little girl's hand. And using a resurrection word, Matthew said the little girl arose. The point is, brothers, that with Christ, death is temporary. 
It's as if you're only sleeping. If you or a loved one has died in Christ, it is only temporary. Matthew is showing us that Jesus has authority over everything, including our ultimate enemy, which is death. Through his own death, Jesus has destroyed death. Brothers, he, he has conquered it. He, he, and because the grave could not hold him, if you were united to him in faith, the grave can't hold you either. Death is dead and Christ has won. He has canceled the power of sin. He has defeated death, brothers, and it's only temporary. Yes, a new day is dawn. Jesus has authority over sin. He has, a, he has the authority to save even the worst of sinners. He has the authority over our greatest enemy, death. Fourthly, Jesus has the authority to make us new. We see this in verses 27 through 34. Now, you may remember um, uh, our study in Genesis that we had for, for two years. I miss Genesis. Love Matthew. Really miss Genesis. But in that first chapter of Genesis, we see uh, the creation account, the different days of creation. And after every day, after every stage, God, we see him step back to evaluate all that he has made, and he declares it good. And the apex of his creation, humanity, image bearers, he says, is very good. Everything's perfect and beautiful. That is until Genesis 3, where we see the fall. In Genesis 3, the ancient evil serpent invades God's good creation, invades the garden. He leads our parents, Adam and Eve, into sin. And as a result, physical and spiritual ruin enters in. Everything is ruined. But what Matthew's been showing us uh, last week in chapter 8 and chapter 9 is that the mission of Jesus has been to reverse Genesis 3. Jesus has come to undo all that the fall did. Jesus has come to reorder everything that sin, death, and Satan has disordered. <laughs> Jesus has ushered in new creation. That is what we're seeing here. And it's marvelous. And one of the things that we see is that Jesus has the authority to make us physically new. See that in verses 27 through verse 30 with the healing of these two blind men. Now, we've said it before in this already not yet time in which we live as Christians. We will not be 100% physically and totally and lastingly healed in this life. Even if God in his grace and mercy delivers us from an illness Unless Christ comes back, we're still going to experience death. Not the lasting sting of death, because remember, Jesus has authority over death. But we'll still experience that in this life. So all of these uh, healing miracles we're seeing is, is kind of that thin place. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a window, it's a sneak peek into what the uh, end times will be like. And the already when, uh, when God's kingdom is here in full, when Christ returns and makes all things new. And what we see is that we will be physically, totally, lastingly made new. Now, with this particular uh, healing of these two blind men, it's really interesting that these two guys are the first in Matthew's gospel to describe and call Jesus the son of David. Um, okay, they, they knew their Bibles. Um, and the son of David, when they, when they called him the son of David, uh, most definitely they were at least confessing in their limited mind, their limited knowledge, that this must be the Messiah, Jesus, the promised Messiah. Because again, they knew their Bibles. Going back to Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, we see there that the son of David figure would usher in the messianic age. Uh, 
And it's a messianic age that these two men would be very interested in because it's described as blind men being able to see and mute men being able to shout for joy. It's very interesting that even in their blindness, these men could see more clearly than the Pharisees could. But even still, they didn't know who Jesus was entirely, but they knew that he must be this, this promised one, this Messiah. So they, so they went to Jesus in faith, and Jesus heals them. Now, um, we also see, too, that Jesus heals them behind closed doors. You know, some of y'all have been thinking about this messianic secret that we see sometimes in Mark and Matthew, and uh, it's, it's crept up in, in Matthew before. Sometimes Jesus says, okay, I'm going to heal you, but don't go tell people about it. And uh, there's two example or two reasons why Jesus could have, have done that in this case. The first one, you'll notice that behind closed doors, Jesus asked them a question, do you really believe that I can do this? And uh, R.C. Sproul says that Jesus asked that question because he's increasing their faith uh, for their benefit so that they would know that they've come to Jesus not merely out of desperation, but actually because they believe he's the Messiah. And so he wanted to have this conversation with them. Another possibility, and I think this one is, is more um, probably more historically true, um, is that because Jesus knew there's been lots of misunderstanding about who the Messiah is and what he's come to do. And in order to avoid further confusion and people preventing him from doing what, what he has actually come here to do, there's certain times and in certain scenarios that Jesus wants to be more private because he wants to be the person who um, chooses the time and place that he reveals who he is and what he's come here to do in, in full. And so that seems like what's happening here. Now, again, the main point is that Jesus on the day to come, uh, you know, he has the authority to make us completely, totally physically new. But the theological point for the here and now is this. Brothers, all of us are spiritually blind. All of us, or at least were born spiritually blind. We were blind to the things of God. Now, if you know who God is, if you know uh, the gospel, if you understand it, if you see Jesus in, in his glory, you didn't do that. Remember, God did that, so praise him for it. But brothers, if you're if you're like the, the men on the road to Emmaus where you, 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 you like Jesus, you love Jesus, but you don't really understand him and you want to know him more, or you're still deciding upon him, or you're still mulling it over, do what these men did. Go to Jesus and pray that he would remove the scales from your eyes because, because when you do, when, he, when you do that, that's exactly what he'll do. He'll open your eyes and you'll be able to see him in his glory and know without a doubt that he is the king that you need and he is the king that you can trust. We also say too that Jesus heals us spiritually. He makes us new spiritually, which we can experience in the here and now. Now, after he heals this mute man, this is where the opposition uh, of Jesus or towards Jesus really reveals its true colors as being this evil, this evil conspiracy against Christ. Um, previously, they, they called Jesus a blasphemer. Ironically, they were blaspheming when they called Jesus a blasphemer, but they're certainly blaspheming against Christ right now, uh, making the atrocious accusation that Jesus is in cahoots with the devil himself. Now, Jesus will, will address that accusation head on in Matthew 12, so wait for it. Um, but for those of us who have eyes to see, in this passage, this is what Jesus is powerfully demonstrating. 
that Jesus has authority over absolutely everything that opposes us, including our ancient enemies. We've already seen that he has authority over sin. He has, he has canceled the power of sin. We've already seen that he has authority over our greatest enemy. He has nullified death. He's taken out its lasting sting. It's temporary. What about Satan? Jesus has defeated Satan. This is what this story is pointing to, that all these exorcism is pointing to. Jesus has, has neutered the power of evil, and he's pushing it back slowly but surely. But what this tells us is that, that, that Satan is defeated, and it gives us hope and encouragement that on the day to come, Satan will be fully and finally destroyed, and his stinger will no longer be felt or even remembered. Brothers, the point is, in all of this, in chapters 8 and 9, that without Jesus, we are hopeless. He is the king that we need, and he is the king that we can trust. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, in the first three verses, he recounts uh, who we are as sinners by birth and nature. Uh, we are sinners who are blind to the things of God. We would never choose God naturally. We are enslaved to the ancient powers, which we just mentioned. And we are justly under the wrath of God, damned. But God, Paul says, uh, starting in Ephesians 2 verse 4, um, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show incomparable riches of grace expressed to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, what we've been seeing is that there's no a finer picture of that divine love, of that unmerited grace, of that kindness, of that resurrection power and salvation than we see here in Matthew 8 and 9. Friends, Jesus is the king who has authority over sin. He has the authority to cancel it. He has the authority to save sinners. He has the authority to deliver us from whatever is gripping us. He is the king that we need, and he is the king that we can trust. Now, lastly, um, Matthew shows us where this amazing salvation leads. And in verses 35 through 38, we see that Jesus has the authority to send us out. Now, I wish I had more time to really chew on this passage, which is one of my favorites. But I'll tell you what, if you know a campus outreach student or a campus outreach staff person, track them down and let them tell you about this passage. It is written on their hearts. They can tell you everything there is to know about Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. But here's the point. Jesus's mission to save sinners, it sprang out of his compassionate heart. No one bent his arm. No one bent his arm to go to the cross. No one, no one bent his arm in the incarnation. He came and he saved us through his own death. He delivered us through his, his resurrection out of his compassionate heart. He looked out to the crowds we see here, and he didn't see dirty, rotten sinners. He didn't see those secular people or those people who are not like us. Friends, all of us are unlike God. We're all others to God, every single one of us. But he didn't look at us like that. 
what does he say? He says, these people are lost and they're helpless and they're hurting. They're sheep without a shepherd. And there's no one to tell them the good news of the gospel. There's no one to tell them that there is a king, a true king, that they can trust. And furthermore, those people who knew better, who should have known better, were leading them further astray, the religious leaders of the day. So this is what Jesus says. We see that his, his mission sprang from his compassionate heart. And then later in this passage, uh, he, he tells his disciples to pray. In my mind, I think there's only two places that Jesus tells us exactly what to pray for in the Lord's Prayer and right here. And what does Jesus say? He says, pray to the Lord that he would send out laborers to bring into the harvest those who are eager and waiting for someone to tell them the good news of the gospel. I want you to go and pray that. But here's the thing. What the disciples found out, what we'll see in chapter 10, is that when Jesus' followers begin praying that prayer, they begin to realize that they themselves are the answer to that prayer. Friends, this is amazing. Jesus came to heal us. He came to forgive us. He came to save us. He came to make us new. And now he gives us the amazing dignity of participating in his mission of making earth as it is in heaven, gathering up those who are hurting and helpless and bringing them into God's family. Isn't this incredible that God has given you the greatest dignity, the greatest purpose you could ever possibly imagine? If you are a Christian, brothers, you are the most significant person in this world. The world is in desperate need of you to bring the news of Jesus Christ, the one true king whom they need and can trust. Bring that news to them. The only question is, will we respond? So my prayer for all of us is that you and I, we would, we would have eyes to see. We would have ears to hear. We would have tongues to speak. And we would have hearts to trust the one who is truly in authority. As we follow him out into the harvest field to proclaim the good news that a new day has dawned. And the hope of the hopeless has come. Friends, Jesus is king, and he's an authority over absolutely everything. He demands our allegiance. We cannot be indifferent. But the good news is, is that King Jesus is the king that you and I need, and he's the one that we can trust. Praise be to him. Amen.